Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back. Grab your favorite drink and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have another listener suggestion. And this one, well, I'm just going to leave it at, it is definitely one of my favorites. So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, my darlings, as always, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say vampire? That will be a single shot. And every time I say London, that's going to be a double shot. I know everybody's got that song Werewolf in London in their head, even though it's vampires. Seriously, somebody needs to make a song that's werewolf, that's vampires in London. Anyways. All right. Now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And we're going to be donning our Sherlock hats as we dive into the hunt for a vampire in Highgate Cemetery and other bizarre happenings in 1970s London. Somebody play me some good music. Some 70s music. Okay. Too late. Took too long. Ah, the 70s. A time when the clothing was absolutely the worst. <laughs> and the hair wasn't much better. <laughs> and, well, the porn had real bodies and real hair. That's right. The afros weren't just on the heads, my friends. 
But the 70s were a pretty crazy time. And, well, the guys in today's stories, they took it to a whole other level. So, I hope you like it, because I did. It was awesome. Local newspapers in the 1970s caught on to a story that would attract national attention. That's right. There was a vampire on the loose in Highgate Cemetery. And two men were competing to be the first to catch it. The cemetery in North London was, well, the it place for the resting souls of wealthy Londoners in the 19th century. The graveyard is an impressive landscape of intricate tombstones, gothic busts battling unruly ivy, and an A-list guest book of permanent residents including German philosopher Karl Marx and novelist George Eliot. But by the end of the Second World War, the cemetery was in need of some serious TLC. It was run down, making it a perfect filming location for horror movies such as From Beyond the Grave and Taste the Blood of Dracula, both from the early 70s. And it's been dubbed the creepiest cemetery in London. But it was also the site of a pretty hilarious series of events. But residents were experiencing a horror story of their own, of sorts. Sightings of a sinister, dark figure with blood-red eyes who appeared to glide above the grounds started showing up in the local newspapers. There was no other plausible explanation. It had to be a vampire. Or, if it's from this century, it had to be aliens. But in the 1970s, several animals were found dead and drained of blood near Highgate Cemetery. And in the years that followed, two men would go to war over the narrative. But before we get too far into it, let's start at the beginning. One Friday morning in February of 1970, the Hampstead and Highgate Express ran a headline calibrated to chill the blood of residents across suburban North London, and it read, Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? For years, this resting place of London's elite had been plagued with a series of apparently inexplicable events and sightings in and around the confines of Highgate Cemetery. In 1967, two adolescent girls walking home along nearby Swain's Lane claimed to have witnessed the dead rising from their graves by the cemetery's north gate. Another teenager had been awoken one night with something cold and clinging on her hand, which left prominent marks the next morning, while reports circulated of a tall man in a hat walking in the area before melting through the cemetery's walls. The situation had turned nastier by the early months of 1970 as several animals were found dead, their bodies drained of blood and with what appeared to be lacerations to their throats. On the 6th of February that same year, a local man and self-proclaimed magician and Wicca enthusiast 
David Ferrant wrote to the Hammond High, he had seen a tall, gray figure floating in the cemetery on Christmas Eve in 1969, and that he had since found foxes in the ground with their throats slit. As president of the Psychic and Occult Society, it's no surprise that he immediately jumped to paranormal conclusions, a belief that was shared by several concerned residents in the paper's letters page. His account didn't remain uncontested for long, because from the start, Ferrant had a rival, another man who claimed an even more startling paranormal insight, backed up by a career as a self-proclaimed exorcist, vampire hunter, and bishop of the mysterious Old Catholic Church. Based on the available evidence and testimonies, one Sean Manchester was certain, and I quote, it became appallingly apparent that the people of Highgate were not witnessing a harmless earthbound apparition, but a vampire. That's right, Mr. Manchester claimed that the figure was in fact a king vampire, a medieval black magician who had practiced magic in Wallachia, the home of Dracula, before being buried in the cemetery. His body, Mr. Manchester claimed, had been resurrected by a modern Satanist, and his demonic form now stalked the graveyard at night. Now, Mr. Manchester, president of the British Occult Society, a self-professed exorcist and vampire slayer, and alleged bishop of that still unknown church, declared that he would be the one to rid the cemetery of the vampire. Well, Ferrant hit back, saying that the vampire myth had been blown out of proportion with the unhelpful influence of the media, and that the figure was in fact nothing more than your common garden ghost. And in 1970, Manchester published The Highgate Vampire. Ferrant came back with his publication of Beyond the Highgate Vampire. Well, proving that hell hath no fury like a, mu a magician scorned, the two developed a feud, and their antics around the Highgate vampire hysteria attracted the attention of the national press. And it wasn't just the local media that jumped on the growing hysteria after both Manchester and Ferrant declared that they would destroy the evil figure they both claimed to be stalking Highgate, although Ferrant consistently rubbished any notion of any real hammer horror style vampire. The situation finally reached a fever pitch on Friday the 13th, you guessed it, Friday the 13th of February 1970, as Thames TV ran a program on the unfolding saga the night before the scheduled hunt. Both Mr. Manchester and Mr. Ferrant had been interviewed for the report, with Mr. Manchester taunting his rival by announcing that he would be leading a vampire hunt at the cemetery every night. Within hours of the broadcast, 
dozens of hunters equipped with homemade stakes coming from all corners of London descended on the cemetery, bursting past the hastily assembled police cordon. Despite the police efforts to control the mob, several graves were opened and corpses were beheaded and mutilated with spikes, both on that night and during subsequent hunts. Although several hunters claimed to witness the dark figure in the cemetery, that cunning vampire remained unvanquished. And Ferrant and Manchester continued to compete, both claiming they would be the first to find and kill their undead neighbor. And in a conclusion straight out of Harry Potter, the two decided to hold a duel to decide once and for all which of the two men was the greater magician and paranormalist. Flyers started to appear in London underground stations advertising this magical duel, which was scheduled for April the 13th of 1973 on Parliament Hill in Hampstead. Rumors swirled around the media that the two were planning to sacrifice a cat in the presence of naked virgins. Yeah, let that sit in for a second, right? When a local man's beloved pet failed to return home one day, Ferrant was villainized by the RSPCA and the media for allegedly having beheaded the animal as part of a pagan ritual. The duel never actually took place, and Ferrat was arrested in 1974 next to Highgate Cemetery, carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. He was convicted of damaging memorials and interfering with the dead remains. He, however, did successfully sue News of the World for making him look like a cat killer. And because a lawsuit is much too worldly for the likes of a magician, he also posted out voodoo dolls with pins stuck in the heads to the RSPCA inspector and others who had called for his persecution, just for good measure, you know. With no duel to settle the matter, the feud between Manchester and Ferrant was still alive and well, with Ferrant involved in the distribution of a line of comics called The Adventures of Bishop Bonkers, with accompanying Bishop Bonkers merchandise, of course, because, you know, you gotta have the merch. In August of this same year, a woman's century-old remains were discovered desecrated near her former resting place, and the story officially ended in 1973 when Manchester claimed to have driven a stake through the vampire's heart in the nearby House of Dracula in Crouch End. The apparent supernatural forces might have been defeated, but the real fear and loathing at the center of the Highgate vampire story had barely even scratched the surface. Over the subsequent 50 years, public interest and amusement in the story has ebbed and flowed. But one thing has remained constant, the level of animosity between the two men who claimed to own the narrative around the Highgate vampire. For decades, the feud between David Ferrant and Sean Manchester took a succession of twists and turns through a steady stream of petty and often surreal vindictiveness until Ferrant's death in April of 2019. While Ferrant had presided over the British Psychic and Occult Society, Manchester had founded the British Occult Society. 
when Manchester published his sensational book, The Highgate Vampire, in 1985, Ferrant countered with Beyond the Highgate Vampire in 1991. When Ferrant was jailed for grave desecration in 1974, charges, by the way, he always denied, though he admitted sending the voodoo effigies to the police officers, Manchester rarely missed a chance to write several blogs aimed at vilifying his rival, describing him as suffering from narcissistic personality disorder and often illustrated with paintings of Ferrant as a demon. Excitement around the cemetery eventually died down, and now only history buffs are interested in visiting the graves. But the two traded insults in print until Ferrant's death, though the feud reached its dramatic peak in 1973 when both parties heavily advertised that magical duel that was supposed to take place on Parliament Hill in Hampstead before cooling down and calling off the whole thing. According to a statement issued in 2013, Manchester retired from public life that year to devote himself to creative contemplation, though it doesn't appear to have stopped him guarding his relationship to the Highgate vampire any less fiercely. When asked if he would ever consider returning to Highgate, he replied that it remains, and I quote, a member of public record that I would do so if I was able, but always discreetly and absent of any media intrusion, which is precisely why I do not confirm or deny that I am doing so currently or recently, end quote. That's the vaguest yes-no answer I have ever heard in my life. To try to make sense of the tale requires making sense of the area and time in which it took place. Highgate is just one of London's many synthetic villages, but its history is unusually stuffed with the strange and macabre, including, and you're going to love this, the specter of the ghostly chicken. That's right. This is a story from the 17th century involving Sir Francis Bacon and the ghost of a chicken buried in the snow near Pond Square. I know, I straight went to the chicken and the aid, and then, of course, it was Sir Francis Bacon, so you had eggs and bacon. So, if you didn't get there, I helped you get there. One can walk along Highgate's picturesque High Street and through a maze of stately multi-million pound houses and feel the unmistakable stuffy affluence to the area, a coalition of money both old and new. Even the high street's Café Nero seemed embarrassed to be bringing down the tone with its logo half-smudged from sight. The Highgate of 1970 was different, just as the Highgate Cemetery of the era was not the genteel tourist destination that it is today. In place of the carefully manicured graves and pathways, there was a deep-set neglect, characterized by rampant vandalism and mutterings about pagan sex parties taking place in the dark of night. In the 1978 general election, David Ferrant ran in Hornsey as the sole candidate for his own Wicca Workers Party on a platform of free sex and nudity, restoring the Wiccan creed, outlawing communism, establishing state brothels, restoring true power to the monarchy, and leaving the EU common market. Interesting. 
Ferrant's brand of electoral paganism may have been unsuccessful, but it says something of an era in which London could play home to eccentrics and outliers, as well as a time that lent itself to a spectacularly theatrical supernatural tale. From Merlin Coverley, the author of Occult London, which contains a chapter on the Highgate saga, it feels like the story could only have caught fire when it did. And I quote, The entire period seems to be caught up with the folk horror revival. The key date here is 1973, the year zero of folk horror, in which The Wicker Man was released. This also happens to be the year in which the feud between Ferrant and Manchester was at its height, culminating in the magical duel that was supposed to take place on Parliament Hill but never materialized. End quote. This was also the decade of the infield poltergeist, another cornerstone of the city's recent paranormal folk history. It wasn't just a specific cultural moment that propelled interest in the story down the decades. For Coverley, as for many other observers, this is a tale driven by rivalry. And he states, The feud between Ferrant and Manchester seems to have provided the whole dynamic for the story, and it was their enmity which kept it alive. If you remove their involvement from the story, there isn't actually a great deal left, and certainly nothing substantial enough to have maintained a widespread interest in the story 50 years on. In this respect, they really are the story, and the Highgate Vampire is merely the set of circumstances which brought them together." End quote. Now, Don Ecker, the longtime head of research at UFO Magazine and a well-known figure in the U.S.'s sprawling paranormal media scene, that in another life was a law enforcement officer and carried his professional skepticism into his media and broadcasting career. Now, his association with the Highgate Vampire started in the early 1980s after his brother-in-law mentioned it in passing. Years passed before Don stumbled across Sean Manchester's work, where he stated, and I quote, I wanted to contact him through a mutual friend to see if he would be interested in an interview. It came back that he had absolutely no interest whatsoever. I found this kind of odd, to say the least, end quote. And as a formal former criminal investigator, well, when he digs his teeth into something, well, guess what? They stay stuck. And he said, and I quote again, I had the attitude that the guy wasn't firing on all cylinders. Here was a guy that was screaming high and low that vampires were real, that they were an imminent threat to civilization and all the rest of it. But he didn't want to be interviewed by someone fairly well known in the U.S. I know that real vampires were horseshit, but I did want to dig into it further. End quote. And that digging led to Ferrant, a man that Don speaks with fondness as he states, and I quote, I really found him enjoyable. He was just a funny guy. My God, he had some hilarious stories, end quote. Things took a left turn in the early 2000s when Don posited a question on a blog about Manchester, written in admittedly brisk language. Several days later, the email started from the Friends of Sean Manchester Society, and he states, oh boy, that first day there must have been about 10 or 15. And I'm convinced to this day that man does not have a secretary. End quote. 
And it wasn't long before the smear started, after an increasingly ludicrous back-and-forth email conversation that Don documented in his own paper on the subject. And one 2010 blog post from the Friends of Sean Manchester Society gives an accurate flavor of the criticism by stating, and I quote, Don Ecker is a grumpy old American who, like David Ferrand, obsesses about Bishop Sean Manchester on a regular basis. Though they only know him via the internet, it is quite apparent that Ferrand is intimidated by Don Ecker. He even comes across as being afraid of this vulgar Neanderthal. End quote. Wow, that's some pretty strong statements when, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. There is a crucial problem with reporting the case today. Ferrant is gone, his side of the story dependent on the often strained memories of others, and Manchester remains in, well, no mood to relinquish his grip on ownership of the case. It is, after all, almost his entire life's work. Well, also not exactly forthcoming when it comes to requests. Not everyone wants to remember the specter of the Highgate vampire, even as a camp oddity of London's recent social history. Highgate Cemetery understandably doesn't comment, considering it's the custodian of the graves that were desecrated among the initial hysteria, a factor that rids the story of some of its charm when you remember the hurt and anguish it might have, must have caused those with loved ones interned inside its walls. Ferrant's passing has not proved to be the end of the story. His death witnessed an outpouring of affection and reminiscence, including an obituary in the Hammond High, the same newspaper that had helped stoke the Highgate vampire story into being all those years ago. And truthfully, there's actually a documentary that I watched over the weekend about the exact same story. It was great. It's on Discovery+. Plus. But maybe we can absorb the story and realize that when it comes to the Highgate vampire, well, maybe we should just leave any reasonable expectations waiting at the door. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of today's episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on this story and what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need someone to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to all emails. With a caveat, if anybody from the Friends of Sean Manchester Society sends me an email, you will not get a reply. Just letting you know. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time we have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you got it. Don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.